So how are we doing, everybody? I am so glad to see you today. Uh, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors around here. And I think you are in the right spot. Come on. I think you're in the right spot. Uh, it's an amazing thing that technology has allowed our church to be uh, two camp one church with two campuses. Pretty cool. So if you are joining us via video or online this week, we are so glad that you're here. Uh, we celebrate you and we think that God is going to do amazing things in you and through you because of today. Y'all with me on this? So we are in our series called Old School, and uh, we have been journeying through the Old Testament part of the Bible. And in particular, we have been looking at the ancient writings of Jeremiah. Now, what's amazing to me, and I hope that some of you have found this to be true as well, uh, that it is unbelievable to me how relevant words that were written 2,600 years ago are to us today. Anybody find that out? Absolutely incredible. Uh, and this man named Jeremiah, who we have been studying, uh, really an amazing man, really uh, an incredible figure, uh, he, his job was to be a voice box for God. This is his role, that he is a prophet. And uh, what is a prophet's job? It is to hear the voice of God. It is to, what, to go where God tells him to, and to do what God tells him to, and to say what God tells him to, to say. That's right. And, and so this is Jeremiah's job, and he has found it to be uh, a difficult task, to say the least. As a matter of fact, I would say for Jeremiah, it was an always kind of a difficult task. Every single Day was a battle. Uh, but one of the things that I have just grown so much from is by looking at this man's life and looking at this man's call and just to see how faithful he has been. When things were tough and when things were dark, uh, he, he learned to trust God. And I think as a community of faith that we too uh, can learn from this man named Jeremiah. So you guys with me? So let's uh, dive into this a little bit. We're gonna pray first. And then we're going to read a little something to you, all right? Uh, let me lead us in prayer at both of our campuses. Father in heaven, uh, we just take a moment, and I realize, God, that we are all at very, very different places. Uh, we come into here, some of us with great faith, and others of us with great doubt and great struggle. But God, I really do believe that if our hearts are open to you, you will speak to one and every single one of us. God, everybody needs to hear from you today. They do not need to hear from me. They need to hear from you, God. Speak, oh God, for your child is listening. Amen? Amen. Amen. So you all ready to get into this? You ready to jump in? Come on, you ready? Um, maybe you will recognize this man up on the screen. Uh, this guy, his name is Stephen King. Right? He is very famous. He's a famous writer. Uh, he has written a lot of children's books that are just so encouraging and so wonderful. Uh, books like Carrie, It, The Shining. Any of that ring a bell? Uh, well, Stephen King is wildly successful as a writer, literally has written tens and tens of millions of books sold. Uh, but he has a book that is actually not a horror book. All of his writing is basically horror and suspense and all that. But he actually has a book that's not horror at all. It's actually a book on writing, like actually a book teaching people how to write. And it's called Stephen King on Writing. And in this book, he tells, uh, he, he gets really open and he tells of his inner struggle with addiction, with drugs, uh, with alcohol. And he, he talks about the lies that he told to himself 
he, he speaks of this idea that he, he, he convinced himself that he was a better man, uh, a better husband, better father, and a better writer if he was high, if he was intoxicated. And then he writes of this intervention that his wife and kids put together uh, to, to help him in his life. And, and it reads like this, and in a second we'll connect this to Jeremiah, and I'm hopeful that you'll be able to see how these connect together. Uh, but trust me, Jeremiah and Stephen King connect. Okay. This is what she writes, uh, or he writes. She organized an intervention group formed of family and friends, and I was treated to this kind of this is your life in hell moment. Tabby, his wife, uh, began by dumping a trash bag full of stuff on my office rug, uh, from my office onto a rug in the middle of our living room. Uh, beer cans, cigarette butts, cocaine and gram bottles, cocaine and plastic baggies, Coke spoons caked with snot and blood, volume, Xanax, uh, bottles of Robitussin, cough syrup, NyQuil, and even bottles of mouthwash that I used to get high. I didn't even know you could use mouthwash to get high, but apparently Stephen King figured out that. And then he writes this. Now, the point of the intervention, which was certainly as unpleasant for my wife and kids and friends as it was for me, was that I was dying in front of them. I was dying in front of them. Tabby said, quote, I had my choice. I could either get help at a rehab or I could get the blank out of the house. She said that she and the kids loved me, loved me. And for this very reason, none of them wanted to witness my suicide. In other words, uh, his family said, you, you need help, and none of us want to see you die. You, you need to do something to change, or it is not going to end well for you. Uh, the moment in the story for me uh, that just kind of grabbed my heart was when, if you could just imagine being part of his family or being him, and the moment his wife dumps all that paraphernalia out on the rug, what would that moment have been like? The reason she did that was so that Stephen could see the sheer volume of what he was doing. Just put it all out there, filled the garbage bag up, threw it all out there so that he would see just how far he has sunk. That he would be able to put it all in his mind all together and say, this is what you have become. Is it good? Is this who you want to be? And let me tell you something, friends. You, you know this. The point of an intervention, uh, it's not humiliation, right? It's redemption. It's not humiliation. It's restoration. It's not, it's, friends, it's not to hurt somebody. It is to help somebody. She wanted him to see what everybody else was already seeing. And friends, this was the call for Jeremiah at this point. That God called him to lay it all out for the people of Israel. It was like a last hurrah where he was just going to fill the garbage can and just lay it out in front of the people because God wanted them to see what he was seeing. That God wanted them to feel what he was feeling. And God's point, friends, listen to me, was to help, not to hurt. It wasn't humiliation. It was restoration. It was reconciliation. It was this idea of saying, you're far from me. You're distant from me. I don't like who you've become. You have wandered and wandered and wandered. And it is time to come back home. Uh, when God speaks to Jeremiah this one time. 
He's like, Jeremiah, you got to put it all out there. We're going to learn that he literally puts it all out there. And uh, God was saying, I don't like who you become. This has got to change. This has got the same change. And here, here it is, Jeremiah 36, uh, 2. Chapter 36, verse 2. Listen to this. This is powerful, powerful words. It says, take a scroll. They didn't type it up on a computer. They, they got an old kind of fashioned leathery scroll. They dipped their feather tip pen into ink and he starts to write. He says, take a scroll and write on it, what is this word? All. Say this with me. All. He, to write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah until now. At this point in Jeremiah's life, uh, he has been at it almost 20 years. Just speaking week after week, day after day, even moment after moment, uh, all through the lands of Israel, just prophesying and, and teaching and calling the people uh, to change something. 20 years worth almost at this point. And God says, I want you to go back and type it all up. I want you to go back and write a book about it. And I'm thinking to myself, I've been doing this 20 years. I don't think I can remember what I talked about last week, right? But, but God gave Jeremiah this message. And God says, I want you to go back and, and I want you to put it all out there because we're gonna fill this garbage can and we're just going to lay it out in front of the people. And maybe, just maybe, they will have a change of heart. You need to understand, in order to get the, 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 the power of this moment, you need to understand the backstory of what was going on in the land of Israel at the time. Uh, the king over Israel uh, at the writing of this passage was a guy named Jehoiakim. And it is 604, 604 uh, B.C., and Jehoiakim, when he becomes king a few years earlier, he is just a young man of 25 years of age. And uh, one of the things that we learn about Jehoiakim was something that we probably already know. That is an awful young age for somebody to inherit the kind of power that he inherited. Uh, Jehoiakim, we, we learned very quickly that he was not a major character in the Bible, but he was a major disaster in the Bible. Uh, Jehoiakim is this picture-perfect someone of somebody who, who gained power but did not have the character to hold on to that power and to deal with that power correctly. Uh, as a matter of fact, some of the writing of history around Jehoiakim is, is really fascinating. Um, one of the things that history teaches us about this man is that he had incestual relationships with different people in his family. Despicable, right? I mean, all of us would say that is just despicable. Um, but more than that, he would often see women that he was attracted to. And he would call those women to be his wife. And if they were married, he would simply kill the husband and confiscate all of his property. This was just a regular deal for him. As a matter of fact, one of the interesting little stories of history that comes out of this guy's life is that uh, he, he sees this woman one time, uh, calls her to be his wife, takes her from her husband, and he sends his guys out to kill the husband. But what's interesting is the husband got wind of this, and he, of course, flees Israel. He heads south, out of town, out of the city, and he makes his way to Egypt. And, he, and he's really, literally running for his life. Uh, but we learn because of the relationship, the alliance between Israel and Egypt at this time, we learn that the pharaoh of, of Egypt literally allows the king to send men after this husband. 
They find him in Egypt and they drag him all the way back north into Israel and they have him stand in front of Jehoiakim, this young, young king. And when Jehoiakim sees this man, for no other reason than he wanted his wife, he has him slaughtered in front of the king. This is, this is the kind of man and this is the kind of country that Israel has become. And I want you to think about this. Jeremiah is called of God to speak into this culture where orphans and widows were being discarded in the streets. Nobody was caring for them. Nobody cared about the justice for the poor. And Jeremiah is called to speak truth into this culture, to call them back toward God, to call them to repent. And so you know when Jeremiah uh, is called to do this, to, to kind of lay it all out, to write everything that he has spoken of for the last 20 years, you know the garbage can is gonna be quite full. Y'all hear me on this? It is going to be quite full. But the hope of God is that by seeing all of the garbage laid bare at one point, that they would somehow turn from their sin and realize just how much trouble they are in. The direction they're heading will not end well. And this is, this is the warning that God gives. And I want you to see this. It's in Jeremiah 36. Uh, we just read verse two. Now we're gonna read the next verse, verse three. It says, uh, perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster that I plan to inflict on them, they will each what? Turn from their wicked ways. Then I will what? Forgive their wickedness and their sin. Listen to me, friends. Um, he says, Jeremiah, you go and write down all of this stuff. I want you to warn them that their life and their lifestyle will not end well, that their hearts are far from me. And a lot of people uh, read this book of Jeremiah and you read page after page. It's the longest book as far as the amount of words in the entire Bible. And there is nothing good in this book. And a lot of people read this book and go, God is so judgmental. God is so angry. God is so upset that all he cares about is wrath, 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 and warning, warning, warning. Friends, that is not the reason for the book of Jeremiah at all. The reason for the book of Jeremiah is it is a book of grace. It is actually a book of promise. It is actually a book of hope. It is actually a book of mercy. Because he says, if you turn... I will forgive and I will restore you. And friends, listen to me. When somebody who loves you puts this out in front of you and says, this is not going to end well, that is an act of mercy. That is an act of grace, amen? That's an act of hope and restoration. And friends, I tell you this. One day in your life and in my life, the garbage is going to come to the surface. It's all going to be laid in front of you. Everything that you think you can hide, everything that you have been wrestling with all of your life, eventually somebody's going to kick the can over and it's going to be laid bare for everybody. And the question is, is what are you going to do when the garbage hits the fan, right? What, what are you going to do when, when somebody you love, or even when God himself lays something in front of you and says, this isn't gonna work. This has to change. 
Friends, you're going to be caught with a decision that you're going to have to make. You're going to have to decide what you are going to do in that moment. You're going to have to decide, are you going to just stay in the same place you're in or are you you going to move forward? You're going to decide if you're going to just stay stuck or if you're going to take your next steps. And friends, one of the things that um, I hope that we can learn together over this week and next week, because really this is a two-part message like this. You can think of it as one message, just we're going to spread it over two weeks, so you got to come back next week. Y'all with me? Y'all with me? On video, y'all with me? So listen, here, this is so important. We're going to learn that there is a big difference, listen to me, between conviction and change. God does not want you to just to feel guilty. God wants you to change. God doesn't just want you to feel conviction about something. He wants you to change. He he doesn't want you to walk around with shame and going, oh man, I still struggle with this. I feel really bad about this. No, no, no. He wants you to grow. He wants you to take your next step. He wants you to move. Anybody with me on this? This is the heart of God. What are you going to do with your next step? What are you going to do when the garbage is laid in front of you? Uh, Two ladies are out driving a car together. And uh, one woman, as she's driving along, goes, oh, oh, wait, 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 I gotta swing you by my friend's house. You know, you know Sean and, and Tanya, they just got a house. We're gonna swing by. So she turns down the little side road and then another side road into this beautiful neighborhood. And she's going on and on like, oh, they just moved into this house. It is so beautiful. You're gonna love it. It's amazing. It's just so wonderful. Check this out. And so they pull up in front of the house and the lady who's riding passenger just kind of gets real quiet-like and just kind of almost withdraws a little bit and And so the lady driving kind of pulls away, kind of slow-like, and then she kind of steps on the brake a little bit. And she turns to her friend, and she says, how long have we been friends? And the lady says, I don't know, 10, 12, 13 years. And then the lady driving says, well, could, could I just tell you something, make just an observation? You know, I love you, we're friends, we've been friends for a long time, can I just make an observation, and the lady's like, well, it sounds like you're going to anyway, so you might as well, right? And she says this, I've noticed something about you over the many, many years we have been friends. I've noticed that you don't like it when other people get something nice. I've noticed that you don't like it when other people get this opportunity to move ahead, that you don't like it when when, when they get something in their life that is good for them, when something happens good to them, it's like, it's like you shut down. It's like at that moment, her friend just dumps the garbage right in front of her, right? And the garbage was this word called envy. Because envy is this wounded voice that jumps out and says, why them and not me? Uh, Envy is this wounded spirit that believes that somehow the the cosmic cards are stacked against you, that the deck is stacked against you, and that God is somehow holding out uh, on blessing you because he's somehow giving his blessing that you deserve to somebody else. And I'm telling you, friends, um, when envy takes root in your soul, it is like a bitterness. It is a cancer that grows inside of you and it actually causes something in you. It causes you to miss the blessing that God is giving to you, the hundreds of blessings that God has given to you because why? You're looking at the other guy who got two blessings, they just weren't the ones you got. And it is a garbage pit inside of us. 
So there is this question, when God or somebody that loves you gently puts something in front of you and says, here it is. The question is, is what are you going to do? Are you just going to go, oh, yeah, you know, oh, I don't know if I agree with you. Or, oh, I'm not so sure, you know, that this is really true. Or you might go, I feel bad about that. I'm sorry. God's like going, are you just going to feel guilty? Or are you actually going to do something? Are you going to change? Because God is interested in our hearts moving forward not staying the same, right? And so like you, you, you uh, show up uh, to a place like this and you start to hear uh, God speak to you, right? And the preacher is no longer just preaching. He's meddling now, right? And he's kind of talking about you and through the Holy Spirit of God, um, you start to feel the, the, the voice of God whisper into your life. Anybody ever feel that way? You sit in chairs like these and you come and you go, who told Pastor Jay about me? <laughs> right? You, you feel it's for you. And God starts to say this anger inside of you, it's, it's gotta go. This bitterness inside of you, I know I've been there. It's got to go. This lust inside of you, it has to go. You're spending too much time in fantasy land to ever have a real relationship. And it's got to go. This self-absorption, where you think life is about you, the church is about you, your marriage is about you, your friendships are about you, where it's all about you, it has got to go. And so God asks this question, what are you going to do when you hear the voice of God, when the garbage is dumped in front of you? God says, perhaps they will, listen, they will hear. Perhaps they will turn. But if they do that, I will forgive. Come on. Maybe you'll get it right, but God says, I will get it right because I will forgive you if you turn toward him. And so, uh, I want to make sure this is rooted in our hearts before we dive into this little story. The question that is going to come to you is what is your next step about the garbage? What are you gonna do? Just be convicted? Or are you going to change? So, uh, Let's look at one of the craziest stories in the entire book of Jeremiah. You ready for this? Y'all with me so far? It comes from the life of Jeremiah, and it actually unfolds in three different scenes. Uh, it's one kind of story that moves to three distinct locations. It's very, very interesting. And um, 
And uh, before we jump into it too far, I just want to put this out there because I think this is important. Uh, for this particular message, uh, and really a lot of the thinking that has gone into this book of Jeremiah, it, it comes from two uh, pastors that have had a great influence on me, Tim Keller and a guy named Jeff Minion. Uh, both are pastors who have written about Jeremiah, who have uh, preached about Jeremiah. And when I started into this series, I was like going, this is so overwhelming. It is the biggest book in the Bible. Did you know that? Uh, and there is nothing good that I can find in this entire book that's like, wow, this is wonderful. People are going to be so encouraged by this. <laughs> no. And so these guys have helped me uh, uh, to see that and to grow and to grow my own relationship with God through this little book. So y'all good with that? I think it's just important that we throw that out there, okay? Uh, so scene one unfolds. And Jeremiah uh, is told by God to write everything down. To, and what does he do? He doesn't actually write it. He dictates it to a guy named Baruch. Anybody remember a guy named Baruch? We introduced him, I think, in the first or second week uh, in this series. But Jeremiah verbally dictates to him. And, and so uh, Baruch is this scribe. I don't know if you know what a scribe is, but a scribe is essentially a professional writer. He, uh, in this case, he is like a professional assistant to Jeremiah. He's making Jeremiah better in every single way. Uh, he takes the, the messiness of uh, Jeremiah's notes and he organizes them. He takes Jeremiah's writings and records them. Uh, he keeps his plan, he, our planner, he keeps his schedule. So Jeremiah is, uh, has a professional assistant and his name is Baruch. And Baruch is, uh, is told by Jeremiah, get ready, get your pen, get your scrolls, uh, get some ink ready because I'm going to uh, dictate to you the last 20 years of my ministry. This could not be encouraging in any way, right? 20 years. And so uh, we don't know exactly how long this process took, uh, but my guess is it took a little while and they are working through this stuff. And finally, Baruch gets it all done. And uh, what do you think he does with it? I would guess that he would go, woo, Jeremiah, here we go. Here's the scrolls. Go do whatever God tells you to do. I'm with you. But that doesn't happen. You, you would think that Jeremiah would grab them and go to the temple, right? And, and here's a little picture of the temple. We've showed you this before, but uh, the people are gathered there and Jeremiah made it a regular habit of showing up at the temple, uh, preaching at the temple. And how does this go? How does this go? Badly, right? It never goes well uh, for, for him at all. And so uh, Jeremiah, uh, in this case, uh, you, you have to remember the last time that Jeremiah visited the temple, does anybody remember what happens to Jeremiah? He gets arrested, anybody? He gets beat, he gets flogged, he gets put in stocks, he is humiliated and embarrassed. And one of the things we learn is that Jeremiah gets probation from the temple. Literally, he, it is illegal at this point for Jeremiah to return to the temple. And he's afraid at this point, like, Doggone it, if I go there again, they are going to kill me. Because why? He gives the same message over and over. You're screwed up. You suck. You better change or it will not end well for you. And the people are just tired of it over and over. And so God says something different to him this time. He says, dictate all the messages, write them all down. And here's what's funny. Go have Baruch deliver them this time. That'll go better. <laughs> Right? And, and so Jeremiah uh, completes these 
scrolls in Baruch. They, they do all this work. And instead of taking the scrolls and going to the temple, this time he goes, Baruch, this is so great. Good work. Now, because it's worked out so good for me, every time I've gone to the temple, it's just been wonderful. The people love it. Uh, I want you to go to the temple. And I want you to do this when you get there. I want you to stand right in front of all the people. And I want you to read every word that we've just written. The people are going to love it. Trust me. But we learned something about Baruch. Um, He became more than a scribe to Jeremiah. There is something uh, very special that happens in this relationship where he has come to trust that Jeremiah's leadership is from God. Every word. Because Baruch does something that I think very few of us would do. He says, absolutely, Jeremiah. If this is what God says to you, then we will do this. I will do this. It's amazing. So listen to what happens in verse eight. It says, Baruch, son of Neriah, did everything, say this word, everything that Jeremiah the prophet told him to do. At the Lord's temple, he read the words from the Lord's, uh, from the Lord from the scrolls that they had written. Now, uh, let's play this out a little bit. Uh, I've asked uh, Rev Kev uh, to join us. So everybody, let's give it up for Rev Kev. And uh, he is going to... Uh, he is going to play Baruch for us. And, and by the way, very nice, like a Baruch-esque beard, Old That's Testament right. light. That's right. I was hoping it'd be a little bigger. It's it took two days. Yeah, but it's definitely better than that baby face thing that you had going on a couple weeks ago. <laughs> I can tell you that right now. Uh, so Baruch uh, shows up in the middle of the temple. People are everywhere. And it is crammed at this point. We're going to talk about why it was crammed in a minute, but it was packed out. And... Uh, We've just selected some uh, everyday kind of writings that Jeremiah had put together, and these are just a few of the words that Jeremiah uh, had Baruch lead, read to the people. Among my people are the wicked who lie and wait, like men who snare birds and like those who set traps to catch people, like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. They have become rich and powerful and have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not seek justice. They do not promote the case of the fatherless. They do not defend the just cause of the poor. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord. Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? P.S. You suck. And if you don't change, this is not going to end well for you. (laughs) <laughs> is that actually part of the writings of Jeremiah? Uh, I took a creative license on the end there. <laughs> and this goes on for hour after hour after hour after hour. And so how do you think the people are going to react? Come on. Well, funny, they actually react rather well this time. Totally different. Totally different. The response was 100% different. This is fascinating. There, there was a reason the people were all in the temple and the, there was a reason the response is totally 100% different this time. Listen uh, to what, what happened. Listen very, very carefully. This is the, uh, the scripture describing when Baruch goes to the temple. It's very specific. This is a little kind of like lead-in. It doesn't say what he read. That comes later. But, but this is just a little introduction to what went on and why. Listen to this. It says, in the ninth month, 
of the fifth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, a time of, what is this word? Fasting before the Lord was proclaimed for all of the people. Now we're told that the, the month and the year in, in our calendar starts in what month? Anybody know? January, it's not a trick, trick question. Our, our starts in January. Uh, but the Hebrew calendar actually starts uh, four months later in the month of April. So this is the ninth month, which would be our December. And the year was 604 BC. We just know that from the years that were described there, right? And, and so this is 604 BC. Now, Jeremiah came many years earlier than this, and he starts to prophesy about this empire rising out of the west and out of the north, and that they're going to sweep in from the north and conquer us. Uh, but when Jeremiah starts to mention this little name Babylon, nobody ever even heard of him. No, no, they were not a threat in any way, shape, or form. And they're going, you're crazy. You're crazy. But now, we learned last week that it, Babylon was taking shape and this new kingdom was coming, and that they were conquering territories in the north, and they were spreading, right? Anybody remember this? And so uh, let me just show you on a map what this was like. So the people of Israel, they think that Babylon's just very far away, and they're, and they're safe. So this is just a little Google map, and what do you notice between Jerusalem and Babylon? What, what's that spread in the middle? Anybody recognize what that would be? Desert. So the people of Israel are thinking there is no way on God's earth they are ever going to get a full-scale army to cross the desert to take us, right? It's just too far away. This is long before trains, planes, and automobiles, right? And so if an army wanted to attack from Babylon to Jerusalem, uh, what was common is that they would follow the waterways. You know this from history, right? They would follow the waterway because water equals life, right? Water equals motion and movement. And so uh, Babylon would have to take this trip around the Euphrates River up into the green zone and basically come down along the Mediterranean down into Jerusalem. And it, basically that is over a thousand miles on foot. That is a long way to move an army on foot, is it? Right? Y'all see what's going on here? But what happens next? Let me show you another map. Um, just a year earlier, in 605 BC, just one year earlier, uh, there's something very interesting. This Carchemish city at the, kind of what they call it, the, the head, uh, uh, or the, the, yeah, the headways of the Euphrates, uh, this, this city was, uh, there was a major battle that literally turned the history of the world in this city. And you probably never heard of it. But what happened was, as the Babylonians were growing up on the northern side of the Euphrates, they had made this turn downward, and this little empire called the Egyptian Empire decided that we needed to put a stop to this growing Babylonian threat. Egypt is the world-dominant power in between in between the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And Egypt is left standing after the crumble of the Assyrians. Y'all with me so far? And so Egypt does something remarkable. They take a, a full-size force. Remember, they had a treaty with Jerusalem, with the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And so the, Egypt is south of Jerusalem, and they literally march up almost 1,000 miles to meet Babylon out of their territory. And they figured, we are going to go crush this little empire called Babylon. But what happened in this little city is that the Babylonians utterly destroyed Egypt, utterly conquered all of Pharaoh's armies. And there was, in one moment, a turning of world history at this city.
And so now Babylon is controlling the northern uh, empire, right? And, and they're swooping down. Remember we started to talk about this? They're swooping down to the northern territories, taking land. And so King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon marches up there and from up there in Carchemish, he orders that all of the kingdoms south of him, all the way into Egypt, start to pay taxes. He says, you will pay taxes or else. What does that mean? You either pay taxes or we're going to march our little army, which now has a global reach, right? And we're going to show you that you owe your taxes. All with me so far? This becomes very interesting. Go to the next slide. Now, this little city, Ashkelon, uh, they are a little kingdom south and west of Israel. This is very fascinating. It's about 50 miles outside of the capital of Israel, outside of Jerusalem, just 50 miles away. And Ashkelos sends a little note back to Nebuchadnezzar after, uh, after Nebuchadnezzar says, you will pay my taxes. This guy, the king of Ashkelon, he sends a little note up to uh, old Chad. <laughs> a little joke. Old Nebi. And he says, no way. Ain't gonna pay him. Not paying your stupid taxes. You come and get them if you want. Because he was still under the old thinking that nobody is going to be able to move their army all the way around Babylon and all the way down 400 miles south. 400 miles south. He's like, this is too far. We're safe. They're not going to move their army. Well, how do you think King Nebuchadnezzar feels about that after he just took out the Egyptians? Come on. He's like, do you not realize I am the ruler of the world now? And some little city-state kingdom is going to tell me what to do? And old King Nebuchadnezzar, he decides to do a full-scale invasion, comes right along Israel's territory, right up along the Mediterranean, and he marches a full-size force against Ashkelon and utterly, listen to this, destroys it. History says that King Nebuchadnezzar decided to make an example of this one town so that all other towns would bow. And it says in history that he killed every man, woman, and child in this kingdom, as an example. So I want you to think about what happens next. Why do you think, why do you think the people of, uh, of Israel are crowded at the temple the day Baruch shows up? Fear. Because fear does something to you, right? Because, listen, they're thinking that when Jeremiah starts off this preaching against them, that, that this Babylon's so far away. But now they're 50 miles away. And so they realize they need what? Help from God. So they crowd into the temple and it says that they fast. Does anybody know what a fast is? It's when you go without food or drink or something in order to what? Concentrate on your relationship with God. It's putting aside something that is important to you so you get something more important, your relationship with God. So they entered this fast as a people. Jeremiah didn't call the fast. The people called the fast because they were afraid. Is it coming together now for you? Is it, is it making sense? What's going on here? And let me tell you something. Um, fear can be a powerful, powerful motivator. Uh, fear can work in your favor. Anybody alive during 9-11? Anybody? What was the spiritual mood of our people in the United States after 9-11? Anybody remember? Yeah. It was far more open. It was far more fearful, uh, far more open to spiritual things. But people were ready for God because they were afraid. Fear, listen, fear can work in your favor. Now, 
Didn't we read all the way through Jeremiah? Every time Jeremiah stepped out and he was afraid, God says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. But fear can actually work in your favor. Um, it's when like the guy gets home and he goes, .07, you know where I'm going at, right? He's like, wow, did I just miss that by one one hundredth? I can't believe it. Because you know, like, alcohol blood level for legality is what? 0.08. And he's going 0.07. It's like a warning, right? It's like a warning that goes off. It's like, and he's like, he's not like high-fiving his buddies. I got away with that. No, he is thinking like, that was so close. I could have been in the back of a squad car. Could have cost me 10,000 bucks. I could have spent time in jail. Or even worse, I could have, what? Killed somebody. Could have killed somebody. But he's pulled over and he gets a 0.07. Fear, listen to me, fear can be your friend. Fear can, can work in your favor. It, it's, like, it's, it's like when the people of Israel see 50 miles away, they see the enemy just 50 miles away and fear does something inside of them. Listen, it, it causes you to change. You do realize that, right? Fear can be a great motivator of change. Something has to change. Fear can work in your favor. It's like, it's like when you go to the doctor and you've been to the doctor a hundred different times and this time you sit down and the doctor pulls up his little chair and goes, you need to listen to me and you need to listen to me good. We're tired of playing around. If you don't, what, stop smoking or maybe they'd say don't, you gotta stop drinking, stop doing those pills. If you don't start exercising, if you don't, I don't know, lose some weight, you are going to die. You're going to die. You're going to have a stroke. You're going to have a heart attack. You're not going to make it to 60. When my brother was 35 years old, uh, he weighed 350 pounds. And he started having these little blackouts. Boom, he'd just fall to the ground. And he couldn't explain it. But he was smoking and he was drinking, wasn't walking with Christ. And he knew something was wrong. So he goes to the hospital. They check him out. And he has one of these moments where the doc pulls up the chair and goes, you're 35, I can promise to God you will not make it to 40. Every sign in you, every number, every test is showing that you are gonna die. And it's like this moment, it's like this flare goes off and fear can motivate a change. Listen, something's gotta change. Just like the people of Israel, 50 miles away, they say something has got to change and fear can work in your favor. Or it's like when, when a guy gets home from work and he is met by his wife at the front door. And uh, she has this look that something is really, really broken. It's really wrong. And she says, you know, I've been uh, looking at your internet use. And I've been, uh, a couple of days ago, I, I was on your phone looking for something and I just stumbled across the bunch of stuff <laughs> and in a moment like that this guy is going I'm at the edge of losing everything that is important to me because of a sin that is rampant in his own heart and, he's, and his wife is saying is this really what you want out of life because if this is what you want out of life you're not going to have me and you're not going to have the kids it's your choice and it's like this light goes off, just like the people of Israel who are looking 50 miles away to Ashkelon and they're going, whoo, 
That's pretty close. Something's got to change. And fear can work in your favor. Right? It's like when God starts to stir something new in your heart. And he's going, you can't keep going on like this. It's like when you, you're at work and your boss pulls you into the office and goes, you know, you think you're, you're doing great. And in some ways you are doing great. You think you're crushing it here. But you're not. Your anger and your bitterness toward all the other employees, you're harsh. You can't work here anymore. And it's like this flare goes off and we all have these moments and it could be a hundred different moments but, but you have this moment where, where the spirit of God takes what garbage is being dumped in front of you and he says, what are you going to do about it? It is meant to be like Ashkelon going down and you're going, this is 50 miles away and that's too close for comfort and that could happen to me and if I'm not careful, I've got to change something. I've got to change something. Fear can work in your favor. What is God speaking to you? Now, that's part one. That's part one. And uh, next week, uh, if you want to find out what these things are about, uh, you come next week. And we're going to wrap this whole Jeremiah thing up. And I promise you, uh, it'll be encouraging to you in a very big way. Uh, but at both of our campuses, here, here's how I want to end this. I want to just spend some time uh, with God very personally. Uh, and I know at both of our campuses, this is it's a little scary for some people. Uh, but your campus pastor is going to lead you into this. And we're just going to do a little bit of moment, a little moment of reflection.